The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney. That's all you're getting. No, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a critic. Uh, you can call me just Whitney on the street, though. That's okay. <laughs> Whitney on the street would also like you to call him Rockmeister McCool in all of the correspondence here at We've Got Mail. Here's how this podcast works. Uh, our listeners send us emails. <laughs> you, you write his letters? We read them. That's yep. how it works. Uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. box for those who prefer to send snail mm. mail. Uh, Whitney, what is the P.O. box? Because I can never uh, remember. It, it's <laughs> Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Um, and uh, yeah, we missed last week, so we're, we're going to jump in even faster than usual. Mm. Whitney, what is our first email? Uh, our first letter comes from Pedro. Hello, Pedro. Hi, Pedro. Um, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister, greetings from Sao Paulo. Ooh, cool. Uh, greetings. Uh, my question is simple. Are movie titles important? I know it serves a purpose for cataloging and identification of films, but I have a few thoughts. Uh, as a Brazilian who consumes a lot of movie podcasting from the United States, the first thing I always have to do when searching your recommendations is find out what the movie title is in Brazil. Mm. Most of the times they're really different. Sometimes yeah. I find the translation to be better. Most times I prefer the original. Sometimes the impact of the title is completely lost in translation when released here. So people go to movies based on is it a part of a franchise or based on some IP, the cast, mm. maybe the director, the synopsis, or a trailer, and all I <clears throat> and I find all these things are more important than the titles. I'll give you some examples. Trying to translate the title into Portuguese to English made my point clear. These are a few movies I've seen lately. Uh, the movie Vertigo hmm. translates to A Body That Falls. Okay. In Portuguese. I like it. Yeah. Uh, Lucky Number Slevin translates to Checkmate. <laughs> okay. And, uh, the Game, uh, the uh, David Fincher film, I'm assuming, uh, mm -hmm. translates to Lives in Danger. Okay. Uh, Barb and Star go to Vista del Mar translates to two ants on vacation. <laughs> uh, the half of it translates to you wouldn't imagine. Hmm. Okay. You wouldn't imagine. That, yeah, that's a, that one's a little th generic. Those yeah. are both a little vague. Um, Amsterdam translates to chase on the death canal. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. That's better. Yeah. And, and big trouble in little China translates to the adventures of the forbidden neighborhood. <laughs> Which, that, those are both cute. Those are fun. Um, just to complete the list, I'll bring up some English translations of Brazilian films. Close to the point, also check them out if you can, because they're great. The classic uh, Brazilian documentary, 20 Years Later, was originally called Man Marked to Death. The mm. LGBTQ coming-of-age film, The Way He Looks, is originally called Today I Want to Go Back... Oh, I Want to Go Alone Back Home. Today I Want to Go Alone Back Home. Yes. Okay. The Brazilian New Wave classic Antonio das Mortas, I love that the American title is in Portuguese, was originally called The Dragon of Evil versus the Saint Warrior, <laughs> which is incredibly evocative. That's a great title. Holy, I'll watch that. I'll watch any movie with that title. That's an amazing. Uh, so, what do you think? Uh, what do you think is the importance of titles if they lose their meanings in translation around the world? Mm. Is it just a cataloging attribute? The problem is why I never is why I would never be able to pay attention in the Schmodown. Uh, also, because I don't know half as much as the players. Okay. Uh, since when I already know the answer, it's probably the Brazilian title. Love you guys, Pedro. Um, yeah, that's actually a really good question. Movies, oftentimes, they, they start off with one title in the screenplay phase, and then they go through different titles, or they workshop titles, often if it's a studio project. What is it, what, is, what did they famously, there was like one executive wanted to change the title of Back to the Future to like Spaceman from Pluto? Something like that. Yeah. yeah, and there's like this memo you can find of them like mm. trying like, no, seriously, we could change the title mm. and it'll be so much better than Back to the Future. Let me explain how this works. And Well, we're, we're getting lost in the weeds of uh, when we find a film we like, mm -hmm. we're not, we, we cease becoming imaginative about improving it. It's like, mm. this, it's fine the way it is. Don't change anything about it. It's fine. 
not realizing that maybe there is a better title out there than Back to the Future. Maybe it would have made an even bigger impact if it had a different title. I know, Back to the Future is about as big as movies could get, I, I know, think. But, like, but imagine it bigger. Yeah, well, I've... I've, I've yeah, and here's mm. another one, the opposite example. Uh, Avengers Endgame mm. is one of, if not the biggest movies of all time. I think maybe Avatar overtook it because it got re-released, but... It's like yeah, it's, made it, made it, more made enough money to make Solomon blush. To quote Eddie Azard, and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Endgame is a shitty title. Yeah, Endgame is it's anything. really generic. Yeah. Infinity War has some poetry to it. And, Endgame, uh, Endgame is nothing. I was I, really disappointed when it was called Endgame. I was like, oh, that's a bad title. That's not evocative. That doesn't excite me. I feel like titles. One, yes, you do need to name your movie something so you will know what to call it. Um. But I feel like, and this is one of the reasons why titles often change in different markets, it's because different titles will have different impacts. Like, you can mm. literally translate a title, but oftentimes that title is a reference to something, or has a play on words, like a pun. Mm. That's like, like you, it necessarily like, translates every language. Yeah, you mentioned Amsterdam. That's a yeah. pun in English. Yeah. But, uh, but it's not necessarily going to fit. Mm. Like, you could take the word for Amsterdam and the word for damned, and they're not going to sound anything like each other yeah. in another country. So... Even if you have the literal title translation, it's not going to have that impact. Also, I don't think it's a great title anyway. But I think a title should represent what the movie is to some extent. Mm. You shouldn't hear the title and then see the movie and then feel like you got screwed because the title suggested something you weren't going to get. Yeah, uh, I think that's important. Uh, so on one level, it is to an extent sort of labeling and advertising. But I think a good title, like a really good title can excite you like ooh, what like back to the future is dynamic well it, it should at, at the very least be kind of descriptive yeah uh there and there's been a, a lot of uh bad titling recently yeah. uh the gift the debt mm-hmm. the promise we I reviewed a film last uh, mm. last month called worth and i'm like mm. yeah I'm, you just tell me what the title is oh what do you want to see at the theaters you want to see like malignant oh. or worth just based on the title, I'm seeing a movie called Malignant because there's drama in that. Mm. Worth is a vague concept. That's about, not really going to get me. Uh, that movie is about the worth of human life. Just call it the value of human life. Yeah. Or That's what a is little life, bit more What about, is life worth? That's yeah. actually like the actual a quote from the movie. That's interesting. Mm. I feel like sometimes they're trying to make movies feel more generic to be less threatening. But actually, in actuality, what they're doing is making them... Just less exciting, aren't yeah, they? And uh, when movies do get distributed internationally, I think the titles are then in the hands of the international distributor. Usually, yes. Uh, that's that's not the original maker's intent. It's not mm-hmm. the screenwriter's intent. They they don't translate their own film titles. Mm-hmm. Often, the distributor uh, is has has uh, allegedly has some kind of sense of what their market is interested in mm-hmm. and what would work for that market. That's not necessarily the case, and we've all seen examples where. You know, the the new title for something isn't as good as the old one. Uh, but, um, but, yeah. I do, like, a, and there are some amusing translations. Uh, I remember that the, the film Army of Darkness, which, it's a film I love, but title's a little generic. The, yeah. or, the original intended title was going to be The Medieval Dead. Great little, idea. Little pun on Evil Dead. Yeah. Uh, but they also they, wanted they this one to kind of stand on its own and reach yeah. a bigger audience. So, they, like so yeah, so they called it uh, Army of Darkness, and uh, when that was distributed in Japan, they translated it to Captain's Supermarket. Because <laughs> the idea was he works yeah. at, like, a Kmart yeah, at yeah, the beginning yeah. of the movie. Yeah. And then the climax of the movie is also in the Kmart. Yeah. And S-Mart in the world of the, the movie. Yeah. Works. But, yeah. Uh, a lot of my favorite titles are really long. I, I like the titles when, uh, and there's a huge movement, uh, especially when you look at uh, anime or uh, like Italian exploitation movies and mm. spaghetti westerns. A lot of the, like when really they were when they were released yeah. in the United States, they often just translated the titles quite literally. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what was uh, Django Kill Shoot? What's the Django other one? Kill? If you live, shoot. That's one title. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great title. Clearly, a literal translation of mm. the the Italian word. I, I, I can't say that with any confidence, but it is, I know, it is a choice, and it is something that is very distinctive, and but yeah, I, would, I love it. Would you rather see a film called The Promise? Do you remember what movie, movie I'm talking about when I say The Promise? No. Yeah. See, is it's that not, Was Oscar Isaac in that? Oscar Isaac was in okay, that. Okay, I'm not crazy. Okay, I, I vaguely remember The Promise. No, it's about, it about the Armenian Genocide. That's it, um, yeah. 
or uh, The Gift. There's multiple films called The Gift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sam Raimi did a film called The Gift. There was like... Joel Edgerton did a film called The Gift. Joel Edgerton, that thriller mm-hmm. he did, yeah. yeah. Or, or the, the, the Very different films. Yeah. And each of those films makes good use of that title. Yeah, they're both accurately described, but, those, but they don't mm. really stand out, do they? Mm. I remember I was listening to a commentary track for an early season, like the first season of Family Guy. Okay. And if you look at the, it's actually weird. If you look at the first season or maybe two seasons of Family Guy, all the episode titles have nothing to do with the episode, and they sound like pulp detective stories. Like, like one of the first episodes is something like, "I never knew the dead man." But it's an episode oh, okay. about how, like, Peter Griffin starts his own religion. Like, it has nothing to do with anything. So and it's, they it's a of, little bit of, that was, a, like, one of the jokes of the show, the, I imagine. The, it, was a, it was an inside joke yeah. in, the, in the writer's room, and they just thought it'd be funny to name all the episodes, like, really cool-sounding, like, hard-boiled detective stories. And what they realized is that when they were trying to talk about the show... And say, hey, remember in this one episode when we did this joke, we mm. want to bring it back, or we set this thing up with Meg, and now we want to, you know, use oh, it they, again or ignore it. They forgot uh, the titles. They can't remember what the hell they, they could. When no one remembered like what episode the title referred to, so it didn't really work. They were being too clever about it. Mm. Whereas I feel like if you make a, a movie with a title like the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies, you're never going to confuse that with Nine of the Living Dead. <laughs> They're both zombie movies. You will never uh-huh. confuse those two films. Yeah, yeah. Or The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain. You know what movie that yeah, is. Uh, You'll never confuse that with Sense and Sensibility or Notting Hill. You know what Hugh Grant movie you got. Um, yeah, there aren't a lot of really unusual titles now. And I, I think yeah. it's it's important to grab the eye, and nobody seems to be interested in doing that. I, I do, to, to go back to the Avengers example, mm. they were originally going to release... Uh, Avengers Endgame or Avengers Infinity War Part One, mm-hmm. and then Endgame was already called Avengers Infinity War Part Two. That was they're going to make it like into this big five-hour thing. That was probably the uh, the, mm-hmm. the temp title the, yeah. when they were working on it. Yeah, and then uh, oh. they used the word Endgame in the movie hmm. Avengers Infinity War, and they was like, okay, fuck it, let's call it that. And I'm like, there's so many cooler things. There's so much poetry. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, especially once you get into the weird space shit, you know, like I don't know, it could have been really good. They, Avengers: The Day the Universe Died, like that's yeah, a, yeah, that, yeah. that sounds cool. I want to see that. That sounds, you know, those really cool uh, uh, titles is a filmmaking duo, um, Helen Catet and Bruno Forzani. They made, <laughs> they made three the, films the, so far. The, the Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. They or... made a film called The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, which is an incredible title. It actually is relevant to the tone and the plot. Uh, and then they also made a really excellent uh, uh, grindhousey crime throughout film called Let the Corpses Tan, <laughs> which is... Oh, that's a good title. It's a really underrated don't, movie, Don't too. prevent the corpses from tanning. No, 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 Just no. Let them Leave tan. them out. Leave them out. They'll tan. It'll be great. Mm. Um, so I guess a lot of it comes down to preference. Um, mm. But I think that if you have a title that stands out, your title stands out. And I think that has value in and of itself. Mm. If, when you're looking at a list of titles, the title that makes you go, wait, what's that? You know, there's there's a certain cachet mm. that is sort of undeniable there. But there's also something to be said for simply, look, we got to call the movie something. And not every movie is trying to have a really good title. Personally, I think it's... I think it's important. I think a title suggests something to the audience. It's the first start of a promise. Um, and I think you, you, if you're not making the most of your title, you're not making the most of your movie. Mm. I think it's it's something that is one of the first things that pe- a person in the audience knows about your movie. Even if they're just like flipping through channels and watching TV. Mm. Like, oh, what's on HBO right now? Oh, it's... Um, your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. Not generally on HBO, but whatever. It's a great Italian... It, well, it's actually not that great an Italian movie, but it's a cool Italian movie. Um, it's but, nev- Never Kill a Duckling. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, it's um, Never Torture a Duckling. Never Torture a Duckling. Name of that movie. But yeah, yeah. You, all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'll mm. click on that. On the other hand, some people might get turned off by that, but at least they'll know the audience, you know? Yeah. But in any case, it, it's something that people deal with and wrestle with constantly. It's something that people get really tetchy about. Um, I don't usually talk about a movie's title when I review a movie, but on the handful of occasions when I have, 
Mm. When I was like, this title doesn't really fit the film, and I think it sets you up for something bad, or the title is suggests that the film is less interesting than it is, and the movie's actually really, really good. I, there's a movie I uh, I reviewed, it was a indie comedy set in Austin called Love and Air Sex. <laughs> and it is about uh, a bunch of like 20-somethings dealing with life, love, and relationships. And the backdrop was there was a competition, I think, at the Alamo Draft House, And it was who can mime the most interesting sex scene. Okay, it's like just themselves. Yeah, just miming. Nothing, no no actual human contact. Mm. It's just miming. And it's actually not that important a part of the movie, but it's something that Mm. they could fit in there. And instead of just calling it like air sex, love and air sex is a clunky title. (laughs) Love and air sex doesn't really roll off the tongue. And I was like, you know, this movie is actually rather sweet and clever and has some good characters in it. Love and air sex do not be put off by this kind of generic title. And it was just this general response. Though, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! They don't get to pick the title. And I'm like, why not? Hey, <laughs> everybody, a, somebody gets to pick the title. Hey, somebody gets to pick the title. And if they pick a bad title, we should be able to take them to task. And B, it's part of the film. Mm. It is. So anyway, um, but that's uh, it. But that it's something that we deal with all the time, and some people care more than others. I guess. Here are some titles of Harry Stephen Keeler novels: uh, The Skull of the Waltzing Clown, <laughs> When Thief Meets Thief, nice. Finger, Finger. <laughs> With exclamation points. <laughs> the Man with the Magic Eardrums. Uh, the Case of the Lavender Grip Sack. Cleopatra's Tears. That one's a little... Uh, little, little that, uh, that's not bad. It's not mm-hmm. bad. It's not, not yeah. as amazing as the others, but it's not bad. The Case of the Crazy Corpse. Mm. <laughs> this one's just called A Copy of Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. The Case of the Two-Headed Idiot. <laughs> nice. Yeah, the Sharkskin Book. The Book with the Orange Leaves. The Case of the Two Strange Ladies. Mm-hmm. The Street of a Thousand Eyes, The Riddle of the Wooden Parakeet. These mm-hmm. things are going to stand out. Yeah, exactly. In the case of the transposed legs. <laughs> okay, that one's weird. Yeah. <laughs> All right, anyway, we got to move on. But thank you for writing. Um, again, there's no real good answer to that one. It's uh, something that there's a lot of factors yeah. that roll into. But hopefully you've got a sense of our take and maybe some of the, those factors and how they play into mm-hmm. those decisions. Uh, what do we got next? Uh, this one comes from Johannes. Hello, Johannes. Hi. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Meister of the Cool Rock. Nice. Uh, I had a great time listening to your Iron List episode on Alfred Hitchcock, Ooh. and I was very excited to hear some of the lesser-known Hitchcock movies get some attention. The classics are classics for a reason. Rear Window is just perfect, and Shadow of a Doubt is just so, so good. But Hitchcock made 53 movies, 54 if you count the lost The Mountain Eagle, mm-hmm. and there are some real gems in there. For the past two years, I've been going through Hitchcock's entire filmography for my own podcast, Planet Film Geek, for anyone interesting. Nice. Uh, interested and able to speak German. And I thought I'd share some of my favorite films of his that don't get enough attention. Please do. Uh, number one, Lifeboat. Yeah. I was delighted to hear all the love for this movie in your episode, since I'd always heard of this one as uh, more of a mediocre Hitchcock. And yes... It is just as exciting, sensational, and thought-provoking as you described. It is now in a firm place in my top ten Hitchcock movies. What a pleasant surprise. The same goes for uh, number two, Foreign Correspondent. Mm-hmm. Also never discussed as one of Hitchcock's best, and also one of my absolute favorites, the way it captures the tensions in Europe pre-World War II, and the plea against American neutrality at the end is extremely powerful. And it's one of the few Hitchcock films that was nominated for Best Picture. People forget that. It's like, yeah. it's not, you think that, like, North by Northwest would have been nominated for... No. no Foreign <laughs> Correspondent was, was the one. one. Of the, yeah. It's like four or five, I think, were nominated for Best Picture, and that's one of them. Uh, number Number three, Blackmail. I don't know Blackmail. Oh, that was like uh, the first sound film in, in England, oh, yeah. memory serves. Yeah. I might be alone with this one, but not only does Blackmail tell a thrilling and fast-paced crime story, it is also the first British film to incorporate sound. That's, yeah, anyway. yeah, I'm right. There's yeah. a silent version and a silent-slash-sound hybrid, which is just fascinating on, on a historical level. Yeah, they did that uh, a lot in the early, because not every movie theater was equipped for sound yet. Yeah, So they yeah. made two different versions of the film, or they, so there's a lot of, like, not all of them exist, but a lot of those early sound films have two different versions. Yeah. 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 Uh, number four, The Wrong Man. This might be the most realistic portrayal of Hitchcock's fear of authority and being wrongfully incarcerated because it's based on a real case. Mm. It's very different from a lot of Hitchcock's other movies because it tries to stick as closely as possible to real-life events. It's not as, quote, fun as a lot of his movies, but it's quite chilling and effective. That's one of the few late-era Hitchcock films I actually haven't seen. I've been meaning to get around. Was that, like, wrong. 70s Hitchcock? It was, it was 50s, but it was, like, late oh. 50s, and I've, I've seen, like, pretty much everything... In that whole, like, from, like, the 50s to the 70s, mm-hmm. I think except for The Wrong Man. I think okay. it's the only one I haven't gotten around to yet. Yeah, he's been making movies since the 20s. Yeah, um, exactly. And number five, Sabotage. Uh, this yeah. one's on the list for just how dark and twisted it is. Yeah. Hitchcock later described it as, as a mistake, but I really like the bleakness of this one. Uh, those are some of my favorites I wanted to highlight. I had a lot of fun going through all of Hitchcock's movies and reading up on all the behind-the-scenes stuff, and I feel like I've taken a great class on film history. Also... 
Topaz is not Hitchcock's worst movie by far. Have you seen The Farmer's Wife? No, no, I haven't seen The Farmer's (laughs) Wife. I will make note of that. Uh, Thanks for letting me nerd out about one of my favorite filmmakers, and thank you for all the great work you do. Greetings from Germany, Johannes. Thank you, Johannes. It sounds like a great podcast you're doing. Uh, Yeah, Sabotage, I didn't mention. Sabotage is a really bleak film, and it's about a uh, a saboteur in England uh, who runs a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And while the movie the, while the movies are running, he like in the in the projection booth, he like runs out, commits sabotage, and runs back. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's a scene in that movie where it's like a ticking clock, and it's like when will the bomb go off? And like, oh no, how will this kid get out of this? And uh, yeah, it's not that kind of movie. Just horrible shit happens to people mm-hmm. in that movie. Um, and I think that's and Titchcock talks about learning a lesson how like people don't want. People want the threat of innocent people dying. They don't actually want it to happen. You know? Like, they don't actually, like, you, you wouldn't do a scene where it's just like, um, oh, yeah, Ethan Hunt's, like, you, you, don't, you don't generally have a scene where, like, Ethan Hunt's wife is, like, trapped in a room with the bomb, and he's trying to s- save her, and then he doesn't in the middle of the movie. Yeah. And then she just dies horribly, and it's a real bummer. Like, you can't, the movie can't quite recover from that. Mm. You can't have it be, like, a satisfying heroic conclusion, because it's... Just a real fucking drag. Yeah. yeah. There's, uh, although I do appreciate when a film does get that daring. Sure. Some, it sometimes work, yeah. it will, like, uh, you know, Psycho is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, uh, let's, let's change protagonists part way through the movie. That's mm-hmm. not a spoiler anymore. People know that. Yeah. Uh, there was a, mo- a not at all very good movie from, I think, the early 2000s called 15 Minutes. It had oh, Ed, with Ed, Ed Burns, Ed right? Burns and Robert De Niro yeah, were in that. It was I never about saw a, that. a group of uh, criminals who were trying to become famous by committing crimes. Yeah. Like that, their goal was the the infamy they would gain. I remember, like that came out around the same time, like within a year or two of the movie Showtime, which also had uh, Robert De Niro, but it was like, Eddie Murphy in and, that one. Yeah, and I, for some reason, I thought they were kind of the same film, and I never watched either of them. Well, Showtime is about cops who are being filmed, and um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, fifteen it's minutes is about criminals. Are criminals, themselves. yeah, and and you um, can see how like, how they feel like of a piece. I wonder yeah, if that'd Robert, be a good double feature. Robert De Niro and and Ed Burns play the the cops or the feds. I don't remember the, the yeah. finer details. I rarely do, but uh, I do remember in that movie that in order to become fa- they they've got the drop on Robert De Niro is like oh well if they kill him they'll be really famous oh but he's Robert De Niro you can't get oh shit Robert De Niro's dead oh shit <laughs> halfway through the movie Robert De Niro's just out it's mean, <laughs> like the biggest alert star for a 20 year old movie you weren't going you, to you, see you weren't going to watch 15 minutes no one if, uh, if anyone if, in if our anything, audience thing that twist is the selling point on 15 minutes yeah, so I'm like, actually seriously, they seem more interested it. in seeing it yeah. because uh yeah you know we all know like the twist and like executive decision is that Steven Seagal is not in that movie as much as you'd think yeah but uh, Somehow that one had not gotten out. Some people did not talk about that. So yeah, fifteen because, minutes. Because nobody cared that, about fifteen minutes. A movie you were not going. That was not on your list. Or that if was, it was, it was not in like the top twenty movies you were going to see next. If it was, a, we it's apologize. A, it's a Please let us for, know. Uh, it's a candidate for average fest. Yeah, like fifteen but minutes. I'm more curious to see it. You know, what? this is a digression. I'll make it quick. Uh-huh. Um, I remember it was such a big deal when Pacino and De Niro were not only going to be in the same film but in the same scene in the movie Heat. Uh-huh. And it and it was great, and it's a great movie. It's one of the best movies of the '90s. Uh, and then they did a movie where they spent pretty much the whole movie together, called Righteous Kill, hmm. and it sucks. <laughs> Nobody cares. It's, it's a bad. bad movie. It's a really bad. It is such a bummer hmm. that we finally get a movie where they get to spend the entire film interacting, and it stinks. And then we got The Irishman, and that ended up being really, really great. But like, yeah, <laughs> if Righteous Kill was the only like- time they spent the whole movie together. Ooh, that would have been rough. If, if there's anything we've learned from those terrible Expendables movies, yeah. it's that stunt casting uh, doesn't really extend all that far. Funnily enough, I remember watching Righteous Kill, and we'll get back to Letters in a second, I apologize. Mm-hmm. But I remember watching Righteous Kill, and uh, Curtis 50 Cent Jackson is in that movie. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking to myself, is Curtis Jackson a better actor than Robert De Niro and Al Pacino right now? Because I think he might be. Which is a no, it's no slight against Curtis Fifty Cent Jackson, but it's not what you'd expect. Uh-huh. You've got Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, arguably the two greatest actors of their generation, and they're getting outacted by Curtis by 50 Jackson. Cent, yeah. yeah, did not see that one coming. Good for you, Fifty Cent. Bad for you, Pacino and De Niro. Let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Todd. Hello, Hi, Todd. Todd. Uh, good morning, noon, and night. Uh, I was. What was the first show mm. that you that you binged through? 
that's you know, interesting. In my day, we called it a marathon. Um, yeah. When I initially came up with this question a few minutes ago, <laughs> I thought my answer was Farscape back when I originally brought the series, uh, series DVDs and fourth season, uh, when the fourth season was released in full. Now, as I write this, I realize it might have easily have been Cowboy Bebop, uh, Trigun, or maybe even Robotech. Anyway, uh, I was just yeah, yeah. curious to hear your answers. Thank you, Todd. That's interesting. I, I okay, definitely... we're, we're old, and we, we're old enough to remember before Binging was an, a thing. an entire season of television was available in one place. Yeah, it used to be, even if there were, even if there, and there were very infrequent hmm. uh, home video releases of whole TV shows on VHS, and it was often a practicality thing. You oh, could only would... fit two or three episodes of any of most shows on a, on a tape, and... and so to have a complete set, you it would take up like a whole shelf on a bookshelf. bookshelf yeah. And I've seen a few sets like that. They had like a Highlander, the TV uh, series Columbia, set like that, which was Columbia huge. House. Columbia House did that. Yeah, um, it was they, gigantic. Columbia House did that with Star Trek and Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah. You could get two episodes per tape. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would send you, like, one a month. Yeah. you get two episodes a month. Uh, Twin Peaks had a big-ass set like that, but again, really uncommon. So, and they were really expensive, too, yo, if you wanted to buy an entire expensive. series on VHS. I remember you used to see that they had a big, they had a big like, special place for them at Suncoast Video yeah. that was, like, only for really rich people to get as Christmas presents. Yeah, these gigantic boxes. Yeah, I was really jealous the, of them. Uh, I didn't even want them, but I was like, I, I don't want to watch every single episode of Highlander because I never got into that show. But I also want that VHS set. <laughs> Just because it's so nice. If I ever you, find you that at like a Goodwill or something, I'm totally picture, buying it. Because yeah. there's no way, that even at Goodwill today, they, if they had the whole set, there's no way they'd, spend, they'd sell it for like more than 50 bucks. Yeah, and even you, you that's probably like $20. Like, I would yeah. totally buy that right now. Uh, <laughs> Just so it looked good. Yeah, it'd be awesome. What a, what a great conversation I, piece, you know? I know in the early 2000s when DVDs really started taking off, and DVDs were more successful than anybody ever thought they were going to yeah. be. Uh, and They were compact. They had better video yeah. and audio quality. Yeah, they just they got yeah. scooped up. LaserDisc had already been around for a long time, but it was just impractical, and the technology never really caught on in America, and DVD was mm. more convenient. Yeah, and it was the first time where an entire season of television, A, could fit in a much smaller package, yeah. and B, flirted with affordable. Uh, yeah. It's like, okay, I can spend 60 bucks for a season of television, and that's not mm. so bad. And these days, you can get a whole season of television for almost nothing. Yeah, that's true. But uh, the two I remember really causing a splash were Firefly and 24. Yeah, uh, Firefly was saved by DVD. Yeah, yeah. The DVDs sold so well of, the, of Firefly, which lasted only about 13 episodes, but only like 10 of them aired. Uh, and uh, we did a whole Patreon exclusive uh, series. Yeah, there's a where whole, we did one whole podcast episode, devoted to Firefly. Yeah, one podcast per episode slash movie. Um, and uh, yeah, that show was not a hit on TV, largely because people wanted to like it, but the network kept like airing the episodes out of order, and it got really confusing. And but when they put it on DVD in order. Hmm. All of a sudden, people were like, hey, we like this show. <laughs> we would have watched this. And Fox is like, shit. Well, fine. Buy the DVDs and just keep yeah. buying those so we and don't they, have to spend any more money. And they did. And then the, the DVDs sold so well, they made a movie. And then and the, the movie, movie wasn't, make wasn't money a big hit. Because yeah. as many people bought the DVDs, that's still a lot fewer people than go see movies on a mainstream basis. Yeah, so yeah. it was still pretty niche. But um, I think the first season... Shit. You know what I used to be able to get was uh, a whole bunch of DVD of uh, VHSs of anime. Hmm. Anime was often quite available, so I think I I think the first one I binged. I don't think I got through the whole season because it was a series that was really long, but I think the first one I ever binged was uh, Ranma One Half. Okay, uh, which is a very weird series about a martial arts master who, when you splash. I think when you get them, water on them, it's yeah, like when you get you, them wet, they their bodies shapeshift. Yeah, and like like his dad changes into a giant panda, but when Ranma changes, he changes into a girl, yeah, f- female uh, version of himself. And everyone in the show, except for like his close relatives, are like romantically attracted either to Ranma or the female version of Ranma. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, this is like kind of interestingly progressive at the time. It is probably aged very poorly. Oh, no, uh, it's it's all gay I, panic I, jokes. I, I'm yeah, sure but, it's uh, not great. But like, I, I remember at the time thinking to myself, well, this is neat. We're not really, no one else is really engaging with this. Mm. Um, so I probably, I think I binged that. I also binged uh, all of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Mm. I binged 
the series wasn't done yet, but I binged every like season of Twenty Four because I got started on that late. Yeah, yeah. Twenty Four yeah. was uh, a big hit on DVD because of the the construct of the show. Yeah, it takes place in real time. Each hour of show is one hour of actual uh, time. And Twenty Four was one of the first shows to release it, the entire first season before the second season aired. Yeah, and it, that and, was a huge help because mm. people bought it, they binged it, mm. and then season two was a bigger hit than season one because more people had caught up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, we didn't we didn't mention this, but anime was another big market for like gigantic season long box sets. Mm-hmm. Those were you know prime well, collectors items for people who are interested in the format. But well, uh, another thing we haven't talked about is that before we had binging yeah. and before we had uh, movies, uh, sorry, TV that was regularly available on streaming and home video to be all absorbed at once. The other version we had of that was TV marathons. Yeah, on Thanksgiving, you could watch many, many episodes of uh, the, the Twilight Zone. Typically, like the Twilight Zone was, very, was a very popular one, but they've also done others as well. There used to be X-Files marathons, Buffy marathons, uh, other marathons as well. Uh, Farscape used to have marathons. Um, so that was definitely, I, I definitely, I, probably the first thing I technically binged was Twilight Zone on those mm. marathons. I would, I would literally spend all day on Thanksgiving binging the Twilight Zone. I remember thinking to myself, when dinner was ready, I'm like, shit, I'm going to miss this episode of Twilight Zone because I had to spend time with my damn family eating good food. <laughs> Which tells you a lot about I, me, I guess. I did the same with uh, Mystery Science Theater. They, they did the mm. Turkey Day Marathon. Yeah, they did that too, yeah. Uh, and I didn't have cable TV, so I didn't have like ready access to it. But my dad took me on vacation to a motel, mm. and there was cable TV. And it was difficult to split the time with, you know, wanting to spend time with my dad. And wanting and, to watch MST. And wanting to watch Mr. Yeah. Science Theater back in the hotel If you room. had known eventually it would all be on streaming, would you have been, like, spending more time with your dad? Or would you still know what Oh, I, I, I regret every second I've spent in front of the television. Uh, <laughs> I, I spent my youth playing video games, and I wish I hadn't. Uh, yeah, I hear you. But, uh, yeah, um... Yeah, I think uh, Tenshi in Tokyo was one of the, the first like anime series. A friend of mm-hmm. mine like lent me this big pile of cassettes, and I watched all of those. Oh, in, Spaced, in a... when Spaced was like yeah. only available in bootlegs in America. Oh, I binged yeah. that in like, one day. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm try- trying to think. Because yeah, that wasn't really the way I consumed television. Yeah. I didn't start doing that until I was a little older, so I can't Yeah, it wasn't until, like, really... the v- I mean, again, marathons, maybe, and I think maybe mm-hmm. Ranma, but... Other than that, I think it wasn't until like the early two thousands that yeah, we I watched. Really I watched TV Star Trek marathons and Twilight Zone marathons on TV, but yeah. that's that's kind of it. All right, let's move on. All right, um, this is a letter from Nikolai. Hello, Hi, Nikolai. Nikolai. Um, hello, hello again, fine gents. I hope the fall of twenty twenty one has made the pandemic closer to a sad memory than a present reality for you. Ooh. Things have eased up so much here in Scandinavia uh, to a point where oh, Scandinavia, you're just so great, aren't you? <laughs> Things are great. Scandinavia is... I've, I've, I've been, and it's nice. Mm, nice. Uh, to a point where most over the age of 15 have been fully vaccinated. We're only great. waiting for those who refuse to receive the vaccinations, yeah. which means our daily lives are pretty much close to back to normal. Bars, restaurants, theaters, and cinemas are up and running. Congratulations. And I've enjoyed the comfort of the pitch black cinema halls with a massive bowl of popcorn several times since. I went to see Dune the other night, and I cannot oh, wait to hear right. your review of it. That's uh, right. That's out already over there. Huh? Yeah, we, yeah, we haven't seen the new Dune film yeah, yet. Yeah, weird uh, release schedule on that one, yeah. Without giving anything away, I've seen it twice already, and Ooh. I absolutely loved it. And for the love of God, don't see it on HBO Max. It deserves the biggest screen you can get. Oh, well, I'll see it however I can. Uh, I'll see Yeah, Well, we might have to see it on a laptop. Yeah, that's, that's just the way it shakes that's, out that's, for us That's sometimes. life. We, you know, we also, you know, HBO Max is also available on our TVs. We have nice mm. TVs. You know, just what, when and where catches catch can. I understand that's yeah. not not ideal, but it yeah, is how we I can get it. See every movie, it would be nice to see every movie on the big screen, yeah. but it's not practical and it's not something we're always yeah. going to be able to do. And if they don't work at home, they don't work. Yeah. I have a question regarding a very important topic in the film industry, and that mm. is female directors. Uh, okay. While I'm more than delighted to see an increasing amount of women getting work and putting out fantastic movies, mm-hmm. uh, in recent years, Greta Gerwig, Olivia Wilde, Catherine Bigelow, Patty Jenkins, Julia Ducker, now, and many others, mm-hmm. including Lynn Ramsey, one of my favorite directors, cool. uh, have put out films i do find it fascinating to look back at film history and see where uh these where some of these brilliant women are to be found yeah um it's a sexist industry men yeah. directed the bulk of films for many decades mm-hmm. and while or at least they were credited uh, yeah, that's true yeah. while they were definitely not easy to find i did come across two women directors and i was hoping the two of you could shine some light on why they seem to have been completely forgotten in time mm. uh, number one ida lupino yeah i was about this yeah. i assumed this was coming <laughs> up yeah uh, i didn't know about her until a couple of years ago when martin scorsese mentioned her in an inter- interview that many of his visual expressions in his movies were influenced by lupino I recently watched her directorial work, The Hitchhiker, and oh my god, it's great! Mm -hmm. I'm planning to watch The Bigamist next, and I cannot wait. I also uh, 
know that her one Twilight Zone episode, nicknamed The Masks, that she directed uh, should be on my to-watch list, and I will get to it eventually. Um, cool. Anyways, I've, I've, I've seen the Twilight Zone episode. Okay. That's a great episode, yeah. yeah. I've, I've seen fewer films than I'd like, but let's, let's right. finish reading And uh, number two, this one is controversial, but hear me out, Lenny Riefenstahl. Oh, interesting. Uh, don't okay. get me wrong, I in no way in shape or form support the Nazi regime, which she became known for in terms of her film productions. But I can't deny that she, as a craftsperson, uh, both The Triumph of the Will and Olympia are spectacular pieces of film art, and that Riefenstahl was a master of her work. Uh, there are definitely directors in recent years, such as certain uh, X-Men and Valerian directors, of which I do not wish to name names, that, I de- that deserve to be forgotten. But with Riefenstahl, I think we should at least admire her skills. Maybe not her results or mindset, but at least her abilities. So my question is simply, why do you think some of these women have been forgotten, especially now that more women than ever are stepping behind the camera? Mm-hmm. I'm aware that there are other women in old Hollywood, that I'm, but I'm simply not aware of them, which right. is why my friend recently suggested I should buy Alicia Malone's book, Backwards in Heels. Great book. Yes, you should. Great book. Which I'm looking forward to digging into. Also, if you can recommend other old Hollywood female directors, that would be very much appreciated. Ah. Wish you the best and hope we had an awesome summer. Uh, uh, lots of love from the colder north, uh, colder north than Canada. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for writing in. And yeah, it's it's unfortunate that well, there's a lot of unfortunate things here. First off, I do want to clarify that there's, this is a bit of a misconception. When uh, filmmaking was just getting started in the silent era, there were actually quite a few female filmmakers who were very prolific oh, indeed. and very successful. But because the silent era has largely been lost, I mean, literally lost, like a significant number of the films from the silent era are probably vanished from the face of the earth and will never be seen again because they weren't cared for, they were forgotten, they were destroyed, they weren't properly stored. Mm. Um, a lot of people's work is, if it's available, it's not readily available, it's not easy to track down. Uh, please, 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 if you care at all about this stuff, or even if you think you might, follow movies silently on mm. Twitter. Uh, they are constantly writing about and exploring and discovering new and interesting things about the silent era, and they're debunking a lot of the myths about it as well, because there's a lot of things people sort of assume about the silent era which aren't factually accurate or are based on hearsay, propaganda, or lies. Um, So that's someone to definitely look into, and they talk a lot about the early female filmmakers from the the silent era and beyond, and I am not as equipped as them to talk about Mm. that. Um, regarding uh, Ida Lupino, definitely one of the great uh, female filmmakers of the mid-20th century. Uh, there, around the time sound came along, and they were starting to see fewer and fewer women directing films within the Hollywood studio system, which is fucking bullshit, and there's no excuse for it. Um, and so, like, a huge chunk of the golden age of Hollywood, as we tend to focus on it, doesn't have as many women in it. One huge exception to that, and I want to recommend a podcast to talk about it, is <laughs> Dorothy Arsner. Dorothy Arsner, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the great B. Peterson, who was just on an episode yeah. of uh, Critically Reclaimed, where we yeah. talked about silent Shakespeare, speaking of silent movies, uh, and uh, Mark Edward Hoyk did a wonderful retrospective podcast called Friends of Dorothy, where they talked about every single movie Dorothy Arsner oh, directed. The and... Dorothy, they did too. Uh, oh, well, you're right, was, sorry, apologies. There was, yeah. uh, uh, B. and Mark did Dance Dorothy Dance. Yes, uh, which, that was it. Because she did a film called Dance Girl Dance. I apologize. Uh, Dance Dorothy Dance was uh, uh, the retrospective on Dorothy Arzner's films and Friends of Dorothy was, uh, isn't that cute? Yeah. Were about like uh, people who worked with Dorothy Arzner or were known to be associated with Dorothy Arzner. Yeah. Uh, Great, great Mm. series. You'll learn a lot and you'll find out about a lot of movies that I haven't seen yet even. And Mm. so I do want to guide you to the people who know even more than we do. Um, So that's a great example uh, right there. Uh, in particular, Lenny Riefenstahl. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I could be wrong. Um, Re- Riefenstahl. Is it Riefenstahl? Yeah. Okay. Well, Lenny Riefenstahl, uh, if you don't know the name, Lenny Riefenstahl was an actor and then a filmmaker who is considered one of the more influential documentary filmmakers in terms of their presentation. Mm. Uh, but also, they directed Nazi propaganda and New Hitler and uh, mm. their film Triumph of the Will. Uh, is considered one of the most important pieces of Nazi propaganda in World War II that really desperately tried to uh, uh, sell the audience on the greatness, or the so-called greatness, rather, of the Third Mm. Reich. Mm. Uh, The imagery that Riefenstahl captured... Riefenstahl, sorry. The imagery that Riefenstahl captured in Triumph of the Will is so... just it's, It's... 
incredibly framed, we can agree on that much, I suppose, that uh, well, a lot of filmmakers have used it as inspiration for whenever they make a movie about fascism, or even that's evoking fascism, everything mm-hmm. from Star Wars... To the latest to, My Little Pony movie. To the Lord of yeah. the Rings. Like, oh, these yeah. are... these. This is the cinematic language of fascistic evil, mm. even though the movie was convinced otherwise. The, uh... So I remember, we don't really talk about Lenny Riefenstahl very often, even no, though they made a lot of acclaimed documentaries, well, because the, also look what they did. He, here's also um, a, a way to look at the triumph of the will. A lot of people say uh, just sort of how exhilarating it is, a uh, mm. work of propaganda. And if, if you were a member of the Nazi party, it would be great for you, right? Uh, <sighs> maybe not. Um, yeah. I remember... Uh, Roger Ebert had a, a series of essays he was doing called Great Films. It was just uh, every other week he'd write yeah. a new essay about a film that he considered to be great. Yeah. And, uh, and eventually he came to The Triumph of the Will. He wanted to address it because he said he constant Roger Ebert kept on hearing about how yeah. what an exhilarating piece of work it was. And he compared it to the movie Woodstock. Okay. These are both movies about gigantic events. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is uh, the 1934 Nuremberg Rally. One is Summer of Love Woodstock, yeah. a concert film. Uh, and Woodstock isn't just the performances. Mm-hmm. We get to go down into the audience. We get to see how they organize things. There's a lot of dirt and talk about what a massive undertaking all of this was to construct something like Woodstock. Yeah, it's, a, it's, uh, just a, it's like an image the, of a the, the logistics of actually yeah. making a concert of this size. It's a historical document. Yeah, so they're they're covering a lot of bases. The Triumph of the Will has none of that. What went into making a rally like this? How do you get people there? Where do they stay? Mm-hmm. Do the, are they are they staying in local mo- like motels? It's not trying to be informative about yeah, when, the event. Exactly. It's it's just the event itself, and that's actually an incredibly boring way to look at an event like this. <laughs> just seeing the event and like sort of like it, it almost feels like a highlight reel. So yeah. um, ever since I read that, I thought of the Triumph of the Will as maybe not as dynamic as I thought it was. Yeah. All it did is give us the language of fascism yeah. that we've been borrowing from to express fascism in future films. Yeah. Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl, interesting person. Uh, yeah. Lived a very if, long life, worked, kept yeah, working a, afterwards, somehow. There's a, a, a biopic of Jesse Owens called, cleverly, Race. Oh, yeah. And uh, Lenny Riefenstahl like, is in that. She's played oh, by... Uh, Carice Van Houten from Black Books. Oh, like she she just has like a, a like a, a small bit, but in that okay. film, she's depicted as somebody who's like making these films like as a survival technique under fascism, but really she's she wasn't a fascist herself. Uh-huh. Like that that's sort of the implication in that movie. Yeah, I've heard that touted. Yeah. I've also heard it said that the exact opposite is true, and yeah. it's hard to say. Um, and there's documentary without, films without about personal, her, and her life, but without yeah, personal and, research and going through all the biographies, I don't know if I can say that for myself. So, but, yeah, l- yeah, there there are many other names you can celebrate other than Lenny Riefenstahl, yeah. whose whose works are historically significant, but mm-hmm. not grand filmmaking the way some of your film schools might have said. Yeah, um, who, who are some other? Uh, Female filmmakers, maybe that uh, we can recommend here. Um, this is oh, well, a little later. Claire, I'm a big fan Claire of Denis, Claire Denis. Claire uh, Denis, uh, Agnes Varda. Yeah, I was definitely. about to say Varda. A uh, little is later, incredibly significant. One of my favorite auteurs of the '80s who doesn't get talked about enough, and I think I just talked about them on. Oh, what was it? What were we talking about? We were talking about them, I think, on Star Trek or something like that. Uh, but uh, or maybe it was critically acclaimed. But anyway, Susan Seidelman uh, mm. is a really, really underappreciated filmmaker. I think from the '80s. Uh, she made a lot of really amazing, thoughtful uh, yeah. uh, films, but uh, there were also many of them quite big hits. Films like Desperately Seeking Susan. Yeah, if, if if you like experimental filmmaking, go with Maya Darren. Mm. Uh, she made uh, some pretty uh, pretty pretty out there experimental shorts. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, a, a filmmaker who actually uh, made a movie about kind of what we're talking about. We have to recommend Watermelon Woman. Oh yeah. Um, Watermelon Woman is actually a film about a documentarian who is trying to research female performers, particularly of color, uh, and directors from the silent era and trying to uncover their stories because those stories are long since lost. Mm -hmm. And because they couldn't really tell a story about uh, 
the subject they wanted to, they had to invent the history. Yeah. Because like, well, we're, it's we're all the, vanished. We're the queer women of color in classic Hollywood. Well, well good l- luck Good sh- luck uh, finding a lot of material on that. There's uh, not a lot. You, you, know? you didn't say your name, but it's made by Cheryl Dunier. Thank and, you. Uh, thank uh, you. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know. Cheryl Dunier made a film yeah. called The Watermelon Woman in the mid 90s. And it's, it's A, it's like super 90s, uh, yeah. but it's also really exhilarating filmmaking. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, yeah, a lot of uh, women working right now. I've, I was really excited to. I'm, I'm reviewing a lot more films by women. Mm-hmm. They're, they're ma- making them the to me more that, more than yeah. they did in the past. I don't want to say like more women are making films. Women have always mm. been making films, but they've been making their way into sort of mainstream attention more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watch uh, Penelope Spheres films. Penelope Spheres did a few uh, sort of well-regarded mainstream Hollywood comedies in the 90s, mm-hmm. but she also did a really uh, excellent series of documentaries called The Decline mm-hmm. of Western Civilization back in the 80s. Those are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Chantal, Chantal Ackerman is a really important okay, filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, if you have, if you, I'm not super familiar with the lurks of Lena Wertmuller, Same. but I know Lena Wertmuller yeah. has a lot of really uh, sort of important, notable mm-hmm. works. Uh, one of the bigger, mm-hmm. uh, you probably know because you were talking about the more, more recent ones, but uh, Catherine mm-hmm. Bigelow as well was, yeah. a, was a prominent work. Um, who did, um, oh... Oh, who did that amazing? Was it Born to Kill? Who no, wasn't Born to Kill. That was Seijun Suzuki. Uh, who was the one who did the uh, the documentary styled sci fi film from the early eighties? Born in Flames. Oh, uh, that was um, uh, uh, oh gosh, you put me on the spot. Uh, uh, Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden. Yeah. Look at Lizzie Borden. Please look up Lizzie Borden. Um, Born in Flames is excellent. Oh, I love Born in Flames. Really prescient. Holy shit. <laughs> um, so anyway, hopefully this is a start. We are not the world's greatest expert in every single aspect of cinema, and there are other people who are even better to follow here. Hopefully we recommended a few of them. Uh, please, 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 everybody, whether we're talking to you specifically because you wrote this email or, or mm. just in general, please seek out more films by directed by women. Yeah, Please pick yeah. up more films directed by uh, queer people. Uh, people who are maybe trans, trans or non-binary. Uh, please take up films directed mm-hmm. by people of color, people from uh, different cultures. Uh, it's so easy to just look at what's easily available, and what's easily available is often whatever is closest to us because yeah. it's the most marketed. Uh, it's whatever mm-hmm. is biggest in our neighborhood or in our country, um, and or whatever has the most money thrown at it, which oftentimes is very exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, and this, yeah, I if you put the effort why, in, uh, you're going to um, really discover the world is a, of mm-hmm. cinema is a lot more interesting than you already thought it was. I, I think this is why there's been such a push uh, to uh, hire women to direct like the giantest of blockbusters. Yeah. It's like Patty Jenkins directed two Wonder Woman films. One mm-hmm. of them is pretty good, and uh, yeah, and she's going to do a yeah. she's going to do a Star Wars film now. Good for her. Oh, is she really? Yeah, so I think it's a Rogue Squadron. It's about like uh, it's like mm-hmm. a it's like Top Gun. Okay, kind of yeah. vibe, yeah. I've I've so lost the thread on Star I Wars. Know, there's, it's, it's like so scat. Yeah. It's like Star Wars seems like a bunch of clutter now. It's like there's, yeah, it's there's hard like to keep track. Eight, eight, eight of these. Shows it used now. to be there were the movies, and if you were interested in the side stuff, that was the side stuff. Mm-hmm. And now it's all like you have to follow all of it, and it's mm-hmm. getting a little it's more difficult than really that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, while I think it's great that a, a director like Chloe Zhao is doing a, a Marvel superhero film, mm-hmm. how's that going to work? I'm really fascinated. It should be interesting, mm-hmm. right? At least it's going to be interesting, uh, yeah. failure or success. Uh, but you, yeah, women are making movies all the time, and there are a lot of really wonderful movies out there. But because, uh, to your point, because a lot of people only see like the biggest of the big, mm-hmm. or the most advertised, or the highest moneyed, yeah, uh, that seems like one of the only like the last place yeah. where women can break through, so they actually get attention yeah. as artists. If artists are kept out of the most mm-hmm. mainstream of spaces, whether that's mm-hmm. uh, because they are queer or people of color or women uh, or anything else, really, mm-hmm. uh, that I haven't even uh, people with disabilities, for example, uh, then those stories aren't reaching as many people, and those people mm-hmm. are, st- and a lot of people who consume media very casually. And aren't really thinking about what they consume, which is a lot of people. It's mm. how I consume music most of the time. I'm a very casual music fan. I don't know a lot about music, um, or at least I don't follow it as closely as I do film. Uh, what you happen to be incidentally exposed to can become your whole world. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, we have to be very careful about making sure that these places and these art forms and these uh, studio projects, as big as they are, are 
actually taking into consideration the fact that there's a lot of different people in the world mm -hmm. and they all have stories to tell on their own perspectives and it's important that we give space for that uh and um yeah anyway we we're mm. we're in the weeds here we have time for a couple more emails all maybe right. two more so what do we sure. got? Uh, here's an email from Tim. Uh, Tim says, hey, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the way people with disabilities are, por are portrayed in mainstream movies? Okay. Uh, as a disabled man, I'm quite annoyed with the way Hollywood constantly casts non-disabled actors to play mm -hmm. disabled characters. Brian Cranston, The Upside, Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot. Or people with disabilities are treated as a burden, as in Me Before You. Tell me mm -hmm. what you think. Thanks for everything you do. Tim. Uh, okay, this is a this is and this this is a big topic. This is a uh, huge topic. It's a little we were kind of actually accidentally segued into it a mm -hmm. little bit, um, but uh, people with disabilities are not treated very well in society at large, and I think that's that's nothing controversial to say. Um, there's a, what was that documentary? It was a Crip Camp. There was a documentary that came out last year on mm -hmm. Netflix called Crip Camp, yeah. and it's a really really good documentary. It's I highly recommend by, it. Uh, Obama's production. Yeah, um, and it was about. Uh, the first summer camp in America for people with disabilities. Uh, and for a lot of people with disabilities, this was like their only opportunity or their first opportunity, at least, to be in an environment where they were surrounded by people who maybe their disabilities were different, but were going through similar experiences. And they were able to, instead of feeling like they were other, mm. uh, they felt like a part of a group. And a lot of them talk about how incredibly empowering that was and how that gave them something to shoot for something that they didn't know was possible because too much of the world that they lived in especially in the mid-20th century but still now mm. isn't really geared for them there weren't enough ramps on streets for example or going into buildings then that's just one of many 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 examples um and then a lot of those people ended up becoming activists who pushed for many decades to improve the world for people with disabilities and it's something that we're still struggling with today please do your research into this i'm not the, the world's greatest expert at this uh but there's a lot to learn here mm. um and unfortunately a lot of the entertainment industry is still very exclusionary there's still a lot of here's a good example there's a um a lot of the move to streaming has allowed people who otherwise maybe have mobility issues or in the case of a pandemic, people with compromised immune systems, they can't really go to the theater. Mm -hmm. And so seeing more movies at home increases the accessibility of films. There is a new Achipapong Wirsethikul. Uh, Apichapong Wirsethikul. I came so close. Uh, <laughs> but there's a new movie that it's directed... A Thai from, director. From, from the director of Uncle Boomy Who Can Recalls Past Lives and Cemetery of Splendor. He's got a new movie starring Tilda Swinton. Is it called... Was it Memoria? Memoria. Yeah. Uh, the title and, and the idea they just, is, just today announced the release pattern for memoria it will never be on streaming it will never be on home video it will only be in theaters and it will like have like a roadshow thing and constantly yeah, it'll, move it'll around. play in every every theater in this country for one week a piece and it'll just yeah. like stay playing forever and that's on the surface that might briefly sound like a neat idea but when you think about it for any meaning you think about who is being permanently excluded from seeing this film mm. uh that's uh, and it shows uh, just how little uh, people are thinking about this. Uh, Alonso Duralde's Twitter joke was Uncle Boon Me, who can't make it that week. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. If you can't make it that week, you just don't get to see yeah, this or, new film. Or uh, if you can't make it to a theater because it's impractical or the theaters aren't designed mm -hmm. for you where you live. Mm -hmm. That sucks. That is the sort of the super narrative here. That's what's going on that's, in like reality. Well, that's, that's accessibility. But it shows uh, just how, of... how little the, 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 the studios are really thinking yeah. well, about and, this. And Tim was also talking about um, representation in film. I was and leading into that. Yeah. So I the, think, um, but I think that shows why representation in film is just part of a big tapestry yeah. of how they're not really thinking about this well enough. Um, yeah, d disabled narratives in films are, yeah, they're, they're mm -hmm. typically treated as, well, they're clearly written by uh able-bodied people frequently they're yeah. they're not yeah or you know if i can't say that's that's a universally yeah. true thing but often that's the case yeah. it's really rare that a character is is mm. incidentally disabled in a film that's the thing that really infuriates yeah. me we don't see people who just incidentally mm. for example a venom for example mm. the new venom a movie i liked there's a character with a hearing aid that's mm. a plot point yeah like it can't just be a person with a hearing aid you can't mm. just be a person who happens to be in a wheelchair a person who has any number of yeah, the many disabilities people live with every day that's always related to the plot in yeah, some the, way in almost the, any mainstream the disability film. yeah is is part of the the story yeah. in a lot yeah. of these movies um, and and yeah they they cast able-bodied actors to play mm -hmm. disabled people they mm -hmm. 
not knowing that, or not recognizing, or not even thinking that there might be some disabled actors out there. There, oftentimes, their excuse uh, is we want to make sure we can tell a story from like before they became disabled, and so we need yeah, to show so them we walking need them around, to have them be able-bodied for a part of the movie. But yeah. that's not always the case, and they still do it anyway. Mm. And also that the absolute emphasis on people who didn't have a disability, something happened, and now mm. they do is sort of erasing from a lot of these narratives the fact that a lot of people are born with disabilities and they're yeah. living their lives through that, and that sucks. There, there but, are a few good examples. There, uh, there, there's a mumblecore film called Beeswax from the mid-2000s mm-hmm. that was really good uh, about a mm-hmm. disabled photographer and her disability is just mm-hmm. uh, just an incidental part of her yeah. life. I would uh, say... There was uh, a movie earlier this year oh, called yeah. Coda, which oh, stands yeah. for Children of Deaf Adults, mm-hmm. and that had Marley Matlin, uh, let me look at the actors, Troy Kotzer and Daniel Durant, mm-hmm. uh, three uh, actually actual deaf actors mm-hmm. who are playing deaf characters. And mm-hmm. while their deafness is a big part of the main character's narrative, mm-hmm. they're depicted as well-rounded, interesting human beings. Yeah. They're not sort of defined by their, their inability to hear. Um, I'll give an example that is... Uh, people in the horror community point out this a lot, but a lot of people outside of the horror community aren't aware of at least the attempts that were made by these movies to be progressive in this regard. Uh, Curse of Chucky and Cult of Chucky. Mm-hmm. Starring Fiona Dorif. Uh, mm-hmm. She's the she's the protagonist of those two films, and she's in a wheelchair. Oh, that's right. Yeah, for those two films. And her portrayal as someone who is living with a disability, making the most of it. She's actually... Here's something you almost never see in a movie with someone with a disability, there's a sex scene. She gets to have mm. an actual, like, positive at the time. It's a horror movie. Mm. It doesn't all go well. But, like, <laughs> uh, an actual, she, like, she, she, gets, has, she has the strength she to gets control to the situation. Se- she, she has sex and it's fun. And, and it's, it's on her yeah, own terms, that's it, you know? Yeah. And, like, so that's something that it doesn't get depicted enough. So, although Fiona Dorf is uh, not disabled, uh, the actual depiction of the movies, and kudos to Don mm. Mancini for, for uh, making the effort, um, is often heralded as one of the better recent examples of someone who mm-hmm. is incidentally yeah, disabled and, and the narrative works around them. And it's they're, they're good movies. I like and, those movies. And, and uh, another one that people don't think about a lot, and again, Jay Baruchel, who plays mm. the part, isn't disabled, but uh, Hiccup from oh, How, yeah. to, How to Train Your Dragon That's a 2... Great example. That's a great example. Is, yeah. is, uh, uh, he loses and, a leg he in loses, the first he movie. He loses a foot in the first movie. and yeah, he just half leg. Right? And, he, and yeah. he has a prosthetic through yeah. the other two movies. And that's that. Yeah, and he's it's it's rarely an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's very heroic. And I know I've heard it from a lot of young people saying that that's a very heroic character because mm-hmm. look what they're going through. And yeah. look, look, they're still the protagonist of this major... Right. I mean, if you think about it, it's it's something that is in other movies, but it's not really addressed very often. Anakin Skywalker and Luke Skywalker both lose hands. Yeah, they have prosthetics, and they're like so good that they don't really think about it very much, mm. but they are. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's something that doesn't get discussed very often. But then you also have the, the issue of what is Darth Vader? He's someone who's basically in a walking iron lung. Mm. He's demonized. His breathing is symbolic of evil. Yeah, yeah. that's something um, we don't really talk about a lot. I, I wouldn't call Darth Vader the most <laughs> positive example. No, of, I'm saying that, d- but that's a negative example. Sometimes Hollywood fucks yeah. it up. Uh, is my point. Uh, William and I are are not disabled. Um, I have well, a bad knee. You have a bad, there's, have a bad knee. There, there's some to a degree I am, but I'm certainly not like yeah. it, uh, I'll, so, I'll never run again. So like, I'm that's going, something that sucks. Like I'll never so like ra- sprint down the street ever again. That sucks. So to a my, degree, my point, I am, but, my point being, yeah. rather than listen to us, I'm going to, as the final word on this matter. I'm going to point you toward Kristen Lopez. Yes, uh, a disabled uh, film critic writes very eloquently. One, one about of the better it, film critics working, and yeah. also writes uh, very eloquently about uh, disabled mm-hmm. representation, <clears throat> accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. All all of the issues mm-hmm. that uh, disabled film critics must deal with, and uh, yeah, she is very. Uh, Candid and mm. eloquent about such please, issues. Please so, follow them. Their yeah. Twitter account is <clears throat> Journeys underscore Film, mm. uh, and uh, they also write for IndieWire, the TV editor for IndieWire, and yeah, uh, they host a lot of podcasts. She, as well. she's, she's, she's she's great. She's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Chris, Kristen's really great. Huge, so, huge fan. L- listen to Kristen Lopez. Okay, and uh, uh, I think we have time for one more. One last again, letter. again, mm. we, we'll do the best we can on these topics, but you know, we're not only we're so uh, well equipped. So oh, here's, here, here's something that's a little fun. Uh, this okay. one comes from Dr. Nova. Hello, Dr. Mm-hmm. Nova. Hi, Biz and Rockmeister McCool. I thought it would be really fun to put together my version of the Avengers. <clears throat> so I've done that. Here are five-ish characters that I think would work well together as a superhero team. Okay. <clears throat> Captain Amelia and Mr. Arrow from Treasure Planet. Nice! We have the perfect pairing and they have a spaceship. 
Captain mm. Amelia can also be the leader, and Mr. Arrow is the muscle. Mr. Arrow in that one, it's like the thing. It's like a big rock guy. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Rita Ed, Rita from Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, that's the... Um, Oh, Emily, it's, Blunt uh, Emily Blunt yeah. Uh, she has 100 years of combat experience and a power suit for Iron Man-like tinkering. Uh, the bankroller, Gomez Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Not only is he spectacularly rich, but he has the power of luck and vulnerability, possibly due to luck. Nice. Uh, Gloria from the movie Colossal. Uh, that's uh, oh, Anne Hathaway's that's a, character. That's a choice. That mm. could be interesting, yeah. She can be the Hulk character, and her origin movie can help recognize abuse. <laughs> and Stitch from Lilo and Stitch. He's a smart, strong alien that can throw buildings at people and do science. Science Doctor Nova. <laughs> love it, love it. That's fun. Um, um, when when yeah. I was uh, first getting into Marvel comics, I wasn't getting into the comics. Uh, a mm. friend of mine uh, collected the Marvel superhero trading cards. And brought them to, like, mm. Boy Scout meetings, and we'd pour over these characters, and we'd memorize stats, and they'd have, like, a little brief origin story on the back of the card. And we would assemble teams just for fun. This was okay. before I even touched a Marvel comic book. Right. So I was really familiar with the entire canon of characters before I even started to pick up a book. And when I finally bought my first Marvel comic, it was the Infinity Gauntlet, number one. Uh, I already kind of knew who all of those characters were and kind of what their relationships were. I had mm-hmm. already been given this primer. Uh making fake superhero teams was such a fun thing to do when totally you're 12 fun years old. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to have Darkhawk and Daredevil and Rogue and Iceman. <laughs> and they're all on a team together. And Wait a minute, you don't have a strong guy. you got to have a strong guy. Oh, okay, What fine. about strong guy? Strong guy from Add X-Factor. Strong guy. Yeah. Actual guy. His name was Strong Guy. Um, I've um, often thought about that. I remember when The Expendables came out. I remember thinking to myself, you know what they should do? And it's something that I'm surprised they haven't. Do that with horror. <laughs> There's so many horror icons. Well, they tried to do that with the the dark universe thing. No, no, no. I'm not talking about like the Wolfman and shit. I'm talking about actors. Okay. Like think about like because you think about it. Here are a bunch of actors who they're getting older. They've only got like so much more time with them where they mm-hmm. can really do something really active. Uh, and a lot of them will do like cameos and little things in movies. But what if we mm-hmm. had a horror movie that wasn't just it didn't just feature cameos from, but actually had them as a cool ensemble cast, either playing familiar characters or versions of them, mm-hmm. with people like Robert Englund, Bruce Campbell, Kane Hodder, Kane, uh, T- Tony Todd, Tony Todd, or, exactly, or, or uh, Keith, uh, yeah, like Keith th- David, Ken Forey, all yeah, those like that's a really cool idea. Linnea Quigley, sh- yeah. Do it. Like, that's a cool idea. I'd like to get them all in a... Again, they've done movies like this before. Sure. Like, they've gathered three or four of them. But uh, I'm talking about, like, actually making it, like, a team. Like, they're an old-school team. Mm. They've been working for many, many years fighting various monsters. Mm. And they're either playing their characters that they can get the rights, or they're playing thinly-veiled versions of their characters that they can't. You know? I'd love to see them gathered in a spot where all of them are the victims, that and could there's, be there's some killer stalking all of them. That could be fun. That could you oh knives yeah. out with just horror like yeah, horror, with just horror, 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 horror That's actors. a fun idea. Yeah, there you go. Um, if you if we want to do like a, like an Avengers bit, like we I, I was thinking about this because I've thought about this before because I'm a nerd. <laughs> uh, I would love to see here's here's my ideal like horror Avengers based on actual like movie icons. Uh, you get Ash from the Evil Dead movies. All right. You get Herbert West the Reanimator as their science guy. <laughs> okay. You get Hannibal Lecter as like. It's the face wild man. card. Yeah. No, he's face man. Oh, <laughs> he's, he's the he's, one with all the personality. He's I the see. one who's slick and smooth mm. and can get them into anywhere. Uh, you've got uh, Elise from the Insidious movies, but she's mm. like the ghost version of Elise. Okay. It's from like the ones that they still haven't made. Mm. They refused the, the, the Lynn Lin Shaker. Yeah. And then, and here's the, here's and, the and, wild card. Well, no, you got to get Malignant in there now. I suppose you do. We'll save that for season two or something. <laughs> uh, but here's, here's, here's what you do here's your wild card. Uh, because they found a way to control him, uh-huh. but it's not reliable. Jason Voorhees. D- not not like, Kane Hodder, but Jason. No, no. Jason, Jason Voorhees right. is actually like, you know, they can like aim him in a direction or something like that, but if they're not careful, he will run amok and kill everybody. So they have to be very, it's the zombie version of, uh, they, that would be fun for me. I would love that. But yeah, Gabriel from Malignant uh, uh, would be fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great, that's a great pick. I like that a lot. Her, uh, what, what, what was oh gosh what was the main character's name Al, oh, oh, oh was Alice it Alice Lee Carrie, Carrie. Cassie the Cassie okay Cassie. <laughs> everyone remembers Gabriel but no one remembers uh, well because she uh, had two names that was the yeah, confusing poor part. Annabelle Wallace yeah. hold on Annabelle the, the, the character played by Annabelle Wallace um, yeah who was also in the movie Annabelle 
Uh, yeah, confusingly enough. It was weird. Madison. Madison. She played Madison. Yeah. Yeah. So Ma- Madison is there, like, as yeah. part of the team, but her superpower is Gabriel, and she doesn't want to let him out. That's, like, the Hulk sort of well, thing. Well, at the end of the, at the, end of the movie, I don't want to get into a huge bunch yeah. of spoilers. We're already talking spoilers, actually, but... Yeah. Uh, the end of Malignant's so fucking good. <laughs> Malignant is a blast, man. I love Malignant so much. It does. It goes where you think it's going to go, but it doesn't go there the way you thought, and it completely changes genres for like a huge fucking sequence. And you're just like, I did not think we were going here. Thank you for going here. You are the best. James uh, Wan operating on another level right now. I, I would I would stage a double feature of Malignant and Maniac Cop two. Yeah, that's going. Mm. That's going. Yeah, I'm they, down. they both have the. the Police station. I want to see. Is, is there any other movie where the protagonist having a bad wig is actually like a plot point? <laughs> because I remember watching the that and saying, like, oh man, her wig uh-huh. is not great. If I recognize a bad wig, because I'm really bad at recognizing wigs, hmm. you know it's a bad wig. But I remember thinking to myself, oh, it was never supposed to be a good wig. Like, it was, there's a reason it's like there, that. There's a reason like, her hair looks that yeah, way. Yeah, it's so like, ah, oh, if only there was, there were more movies where, oh, where bad hair was in. It was actually a plot point, not because like the hair is haunted, but like yeah. Anyway, well, that that's it's this is the uh, I'm going to assemble a superhero team. What are they going to do? I don't know. I just yeah. want them all in the same room together for fun. Yeah, why not? You yeah. know, I, I would love to see something like that, but have it be like a walk and talk. Yeah, or you know, my dinner with Andre scenario, yeah. where they just sort of camera pans around a table and they just have a conversation. How about all the comedy sidekick characters from various movies throughout the years. Mm. You know, you get like. Jay and Silent Bob are in there, but it's I've, also like... Uh, I've seen a bumper like that on Cartoon Network where yeah. um, they had all of the sidekick characters. It was Morocco Mole and oh, yeah. Robin. Uh, and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's uh, a good one. Yeah, yeah we, we didn't have the main stories. But we, we didn't have all the char- char- personality, but we helped move the story along. And they pan over to Chicken of Cow and Chicken. Oh, yeah. Because that was the hot new show at the time. Yeah. It was like, look, I, I'm not a sidekick. I'm a co-star. My name is in the title. <laughs> Sure. Sure. Yeah, and and they just sort of like look askance at you're not supposed to say that. (laughs) Anyway, that is it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We think you're awesome. Uh, If you wrote in, we really appreciate it. If we didn't get to your email, we apologize. Feel Mm. free to try again. If you want to send us an email that's like super timely, like you want us to read something for someone's birthday that happens, uh, make sure you also reach out to us on Twitter so we can make a note of it. Uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Whitney is typically in charge of the emails, so he's the one mm-hmm. to reach out to in that case. Uh, but if you want to write in, our, once again, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, and again, we have a P.O. Box, hmm. which is? Uh, it's Critically Acclaimed Networks, uh, P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. Thank you to everybody who, who wrote in. Thank you everybody who just listens in. We're very, very grateful to you. Very big special shout out to our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you haven't signed up yet and you can afford to do so, we'd love to have you. We have a lot of exclusive shows there. Shows about Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards. Uh, we do commentary tracks. We do a digital hangout once a month. You can get to vote for future episodes. There's a lot of stuff over there. We hope you enjoy it. Um, and, um, I guess that's it. Okay. Well, sincerely yours. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney, I guess. Bye.